You can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. You can also find me on Twitter at ERB underscore VFR. Now, um, I haven't been on Twitter much, I have to admit, um, but neither have as, as anybody else. <laughs> Um, at least for that kind of content, because um, I haven't had any very many interactions at all. So um, I will try and do some um, visual um, tweets. For instance, there's a visual that goes with one of the stories tonight. Um, I will uh, tweet that out later on this evening. And I do um, hope to do some more visual tweeting. There's a new um, map, detailed map of the, uh, surface of the moon that is really amazing. And I will tweet out a link to that as well. So I hope that you all continue to be safe and healthy. Uh, we're not going to talk very much about COVID-19 tonight, as I think that it's way more important to uh, leave it to actual experts at this point than to try and give you my take on it as a uh, as a knowledgeable layman but a layman nonetheless and also I think we're probably pretty sick of dealing with it but I will go through a couple of things uh, just because it seems uh, like we should talk about it at least somewhat since it is the central thing that seems to be going on with all of our lives these days. So the first thing that I want to acknowledge is that I'm pretty sure that I have enough general knowledge of physics and biology and frankly just common sense to be able to say with certainty that 5G Wi-Fi has nothing to do with any disease processes. Apparently, there is a conspiracy going around the internet that there is a connection between COVID-19 and 5G. This has actually led people to attack cellular towers. Please be assured that 5G is not capable of making you sick. Now, beyond that particular PSA, I'm not really qualified to do anything else other than recite what health officials have already been saying. Stay inside, wear a mask if you have to go outside. If you develop a cough or fever, call a doctor, call a doctor rather than go into the office in order to prevent the possible infection for other people. And so we want to just make sure that we're doing everything we can to both protect ourselves and other members of our community. Um, I think that's one of the things that has been a little bit frustrating for me over the weeks has been how uh, a lot of people don't seem to be taking it particularly um, seriously. And I think a lot of those people are not necessarily in groups that would be considered at high risk, but they might be in contact with other people who are at high risk, and it's important to protect them as well. But let's take a glancing view at this topic with a bit of good news. Environmentally speaking, uh, 
coming from this ordeal. Now, we talked a little bit about that last week, and um, this one, I think they'll have enough time that this will actually be, this time, something that will hopefully be an actual good turnout. And so this is about baby leatherback sea turtles. So they're apparently using the current situation to be able to do some serious hatching. <laughs> Environmentalists in Thailand have found 11 leatherback sea turtle, or Dermochelis coriaceae, uh, nests since November, which is the largest number in 20 years. And at Florida's Juno Beach, across the uh, ocean, 76 nests have been found, which represents a significant increase in numbers. This is a very good sign for us because many areas for spawning have been destroyed by humans. Kankiat Kitty Watana Wong, the director of the Phuket Marine Biological Center in Thailand, told The Guardian. In fact, they hadn't found any nests in the last five years around the area of the uh, center due to human activity. Now, leatherbacks are also threatened by fishing gear, pollution, climate change, and severe weather. Now, these um, leatherbacks are actually the largest living turtles, though, um, interestingly, and a little bit, um, they can look a little scary, but we have fossils of sea turtles that are actually the size of small whales. So they, they, they were bigger in the past, um, like many things, but uh, leatherbacks are still pretty big. Uh, they're really beautiful creatures, and obviously it's really great that they are getting this chance to have a tiny bit of a rebound while everything is in a holding pattern as far as human activity. Now, they live all over the world except in the two polar regions, and they live mainly on jellyfish. It seems very interesting that a lot of the largest animals subsist on things that are either very small or not particularly nutrient-dense. So jellyfish are not particularly nutrient-dense, so it's always funny to me how these big animals live on things that they have to eat a lot, a lot, a lot of. And, but anyways, mature females can lay between three and 10 clutches of 60 to 90 eggs, which, you know, sounds like a lot, except for the fact that they rarely reproduce every year. In fact, they usually wait at least every other year or even more than that in order to reproduce. And even when they do lay a clutch of eggs, just one in 1,000 of those babies will survive to adulthood. So not great odds. In late March, in Thailand's southern province of Phang Naga, environmentalists found 84 hatchlings over the course of two months. David Godfrey, the executive director of the Sea Turtle Conservancy in Florida, also noted the impact on the turtles. The chances that turtles are going to be inadvertently struck and killed will be lower, Godfrey told West Palm Beach's local CBS 12 News. All of the reduced human presence on the beach also means that there will be less garbage and other plastics entering the marine environment. Ingestion and entanglement in plastic and marine debris are 
also are leading causes of injury to sea turtles. And of course, I hope that you always remember that if you get any kind of bottle with a ring holding it together, like um, soda bottles or um, sports drink bottles, that you always remember before you throw out those plastic rings to cut them open, um, because that is still a problem. That is still something that happens where animals get trapped inside of those plastic rings and cannot get out and will often starve to death. So an extremely easy thing that you can do to help uh, animals is to just to make sure that you cut up those uh, plastic rings. And I always remember to do that when I'm doing it, even though I wish I wasn't buying things <laughs> that were in individual plastic bottles. Uh, we can only do what we can do sometimes. So that is another silver lining uh, to this time in which we now find ourselves. And speaking of having free time on our hands, I've actually been watching a series on the continents this past week, and it's been pretty cool to learn more about geological processes. And so it's honestly, it's made me once again yearn to become a geologist. I mean, I've gone through all of the related ologies, uh, basically anything that involved rock strata. I'm really, 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 really love rock. <laughs> Um, you know, so I've gone through paleontology, paleobiology, geology, and even the um, sister ologies of anthropology, anthropology and archaeology. And of course, as archaeologists always like to remind people, they don't do dinosaurs. Um, and of course, archaeology is one of my sort of loves because it hits the uh, intersection of history, which is what my um, degree is in, and rocks and strata and um, human human remains being, uh, and actually cultural remains more um, are more interesting to me. So more archaeology than anthropology, but obviously none of that has come to fruition. Uh, my base dream is to become a science librarian at this point, but even that, sadly, is probably not in the cards given my particular work-life situation. But I can continue to share neat facts despite not being in the field properly. So let's dive into this world of geology for most of tonight. Now, one of the things geologists talk about in this series when they're talking about the continents is a kind of rock called kimberlite. It's a type of volcanic rock that forms deep beneath the Earth's crust. And geologists like to find it because it is often diamond bearing. And so one of the things that I think people don't remember sometimes about geologists is that there's plenty of geologists out there just doing regular geology field work, writing papers, being professors, but there's a lot of geologists in industries. Um, geology is integral to things like mining and finding fossil fuels, unfortunately, and um, but also finding water and things like that. Um, there's a lot of practical applications to geology. And so sometimes they want to find those diamonds because they, you know, would like they're working for a diamond um, miner, mining corporation or something like that. But also 
diamonds can be really good um, indicators of past processes because they are formed so deep in the mantle and were formed so long ago that actually diamonds can be really useful as a scientific tool. Um, I'm personally not fond of diamonds. Um, I don't think that I can ever be sure that a diamond that would be put in some sort of jewelry for me would be ethically sourced. Um, I'm not sure that there are ethically sourced diamond mines, frankly. Um, and so I personally, again, this is only me personally, uh, would prefer not to have any diamonds. Um, though, of course, any gemstone is potentially uh, fraught because, of course, capitalist forces. Uh, but we're not we're not going to get into the, that sort of thing tonight. We're talking about geology. <laughs> okay, so geologists have recently discovered a piece of an ancient continent hiding in part of Canada. The formation was found uh, as part of Baffin Island in the north of Canada, where researchers found that the mineral composition of the kimberlite there matched that of a continent formed nearly 3 billion years ago and which broke up around 150 million years ago. Now, a chunk of this ancient continent still anchors part of North America, but finding this new piece suggests that the slab is around 10% larger than was previously believed. Finding these lost pieces is like finding a missing piece of a puzzle, lead study author Maya Kapilova, a geologist with the University of British Columbia in Canada, said in a statement. The first land masses to form on the Earth are called cratons. Now, part parts of the original cratons uh, still exist, and part of this original craton that was part that formed what is now North America, parts of it can be found in Scotland, Greenland, and actually a chunk of it forms parts of Labrador in eastern Canada. So we already knew that there was some... Um, of this craton in Canada. Now, the loop, the last supercontinent, Pangaea, began to break up around 200 million years ago, and then became, became the basic continents we know today by around 60 million years ago. Um, and if you don't remember your plate tectonics, it's actually really fascinating. Um, basically, the reason that you can find uh, shells 2,000 uh, feet up in the air in a mountain is because of plate tectonics. Uh, the reason that oceans form is plate tectonics. Uh, the, my, my, one of my favorite things is the fact that India actually uh, was once pretty much at the attached to the lower part of Africa, and it's moved actually very fast uh, towards the mainland of Asia, and that's why, of course, we have the Himalayas. But um, getting back to this, the newest chunk matches the composition of the Greenland craton and mantle rocks for nearly 250 miles below the surface. Now, most remnants of ancient continents contain around 65% olivine and around 25% of the mineral called orthopyroxene, according to Kaplova. 
but the fragments of the North American craton are made up of 85% olivine and only around 10% of orthopyroxene. And so the kimberlite found on Baffin Island matches this ratio more closely. This allows geologists to know that Baffin Island was once part of the North Atlantic craton, rather than another piece of the ancient continents. Now, this is the deepest location where researchers have found a piece of the North Atlantic craton and gives researchers a new perspective on the craton's evolution. Previous reconstructions of the size and location of Earth's plates have been based on relatively shallow rock samples in the crust, formed at depths of 1 to 10 kilometers, 0.6 to 6 miles, uh, Kaplova said. With these new findings, quote, our knowledge is literally and symbolically deeper. <laughs> so yes, um, that is very cool. And um, geology is a very cool subject. And so now, though, let's move on and talk about some more modern lava. And so this is, the first story comes from Hawaii's Mauna Loa volcano. And so this has to do with a rather interesting plan to deal with the lava flow back in 1935. This past February, a hiker on the big island discovered two unexploded bombs on the side of the volcano. It turns out that these come from a plan to use bombs to try to slow the lava flow during that 1935 eruption. The scientists today, and actually in the past as well, uh, felt that the subsequent slowing of the flow the next day was actually coincident, coincidental to the bombing, though the mastermind of the plan claimed victory. Now, the bombs were found in a lava tube by Kawika Singson, who was hiking the lava fields on February 16th. Now, it turns out apparently bombings were tried both in 1935 and again in 1942. Um, the 1935 ones were done by the Army Corps of Engineers. I assume that the 42 ones were as well, but I didn't check on that, so don't quote me. <laughs> So, the bombs that were found are actually called pointer bombs, according to the Hawaiian Volcanic Volcano Observatory. And so they would have contained only a small amount of charge and were usually used for aiming and targeting the 20 Mark I demolition bombs, which would have been used and which would have contained actually 355 pounds of TNT. Now, the mastermind of the original bombing was actually the HVO's founder, volcanologist Thomas A. Jagger Jr. The volcano began to erupt in November, an event on the north flank of the volcano began to grow into a pond of lava. In December, the pond overflowed and lava began to flow toward the city of Hilo at a rate of one mile per day. It also threatened to spill in the Wailuku River, which was the city's water surprise. Water supply, excuse me. Now, Jagger called in the Army Corps of Engineers, as I mentioned, and so his idea was to use bombs to open another fissure, and this then might allow the lava to flow in a different direction, rather than trying to stop the flow altogether. Our purpose was not to stop the lava flow, but to start it all over again at the source so that it will take a new course, he said in a radio broadcast at the time. 
As noted, the bombing run was almost certainly not actually a success. However, the lava did slow down as the vent ceased erupting on the 2nd of January. Jagger, of course, still claimed success uh, and said that while it didn't succeed as hypothesized, the bombs most likely instead smashed into lava tunnels and exposed the lava to air, allowing it to cool and create a dam that plugged the vent. However, a 1970 investigation suggests that this also did not actually happen. Ground examination of the bombing site showed no evidence that the bombings had increased viscosity and... The cessation of the 1935 flow soon after the bombing must be considered a coincidence, the investigators concluded. Now, today, it's believed that by the time the bombs were launched, the lava flow was already naturally slowing down. Today, we also know that in order to divert a lava flow, it requires a lot of effort and a lot of money. It has successfully been done in Italy and in Iceland, but of course, again, very costly, very hard. It took months in order to combat the uh, lava flow. It wasn't just a quick throw some bombs at it and everything is fine now. And so it's really important to remember that... uh, A few bombs is not enough to tame a lava outflow, which is, of course, powered by the internal forces within the Earth's mantle, which were which are extremely, extremely powerful. Um, So if anybody ever suggests to you to throw a bomb at a volcano, tell them no. (laughs) Okay, let's move on now and talk about the spectacular 2018 eruption of Mount Kilauea, Mount Kilauea rather than Mauna Loa. And so there is new evidence to suggest that this flow might have actually been caused by another natural force, in this case, excessive rainfall. Rainfall may seem an odd spark for a volcanic eruption, but the researchers believe that intense and prolonged rainfall may have eroded and led to the collapse of rocks that held in lava near the caldera's magma chamber. Now, this would have caused the the lava to be able to find a path to the surface and erupt, according to the new paper, which is published in the journal Nature. The paper, co-authored by geologist Jamie Farquharson from the University of Miami, suggests a new way of predicting the timing and frequency of volcanic eruptions. Now, of course, with many variables at play, it's not a one-stop solution. Beginning in May 2018, the Puna eruption was caused by giant cracks which opened along the volcano's lower east rift zone. It led to many local residents having to flee their homes from the threat of both lava and the toxic fumes that accompany such flows. The flow continued for four months, and unfortunately, hundreds of structures were destroyed, and the map of Hawaii Uh, ended up needing to be redrawn to accommodate the new land created when the lava flow met the ocean. And of course, that's how all of the Hawaiian islands are formed. It's by the upwell of uh, magma and then lava hitting the cold ocean water and solidifying into actual land. Now, rainfall has been known to affect seismic activity of volcanoes, but usually only at the surface. 
This new finding shows that it may be able to trigger changes far below the surface. We knew that changes in the water content content in the Earth's subsurface can trigger earthquakes and landslides. Now we know that it can also trigger volcanic eruptions, explained Falk Amalung, a co-author of the study and a geophysicist at the University of Miami in a press release. Under pressure from magma, wet rock breaks easier than dry rock. It's as simple as that. Now, in order to make this finding, the team used ground-based and satellite data to track the unusually long and intense rainfall that led up to the eruption. Because volcanic rock tends to be porous, the water was able to infiltrate deeper into the rocks, which led to a twofold effect. First, the rocks were weakened by the water themselves, and secondly, groundwater pressure increased below the surface around the magma chamber. Using computer models, they were able to see that this precipitation could cause the highest pressures in the last 50 years. Now, the rocks were then fractured and slowed away, allowing magma to force its way to the surface and erupt, according to the paper. Now, this also would neatly explain why the normal uplift that usually precedes eruptions was not present prior to this most recent eruption. As eruption happens, when the pressure in the magma chamber is high enough to break the surrounding rock and the magma travels to the surface, said Amalong, this pressurization causes inflation of the ground by tens of centimeters. As we did not see any significant inflation in the year prior to the eruption, we started to think about alternative explanations. Now, the researchers looked back at historical data for the volcano and found that back to 1790, 60% of eruptions occurred in the short rainy season. Now, of course, while this fits the given data, it cannot conclusively be proven given the complexity of volcanic systems and natural systems in general, frankly. Planetary science scientist Michael Magna from the University of California, Berkeley, said in a commentary on the paper that the first magma to erupt was old, perhaps having been pooled below the surface since the 1955 eruption. This, he suggests, could mean that the area around the magma was hot enough that any water near it would be either a vapor or a supercritical fluid. Both states of water are more compressible than regular liquid water, which would decrease the pressures caused by water in the models. However, Manga does note that the theory could be tested by looking at other volcanoes and seeing if similar patterns emerge. If it turns out to be true, it would be another page in the book for forecasting when eruptions might take place. But unfortunately, this may mean that changes caused by global warming may even affect volcanic activity. And so we will have to see if this holds up and exactly what it means for the future of uh, volcanic eruptions as we move into more severe changes due to climate change. All right. So we are going to take a moment now and do some PSAs and some promomo and some promos, uh, and then we will come back and talk about a different kind of natural disaster. Uh, so stay tuned for that in just a minute. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. 
cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. You have questions about the 2020 census, and we have answers. Let's go to caller number one. Well, what is it? Good question. It's a simple questionnaire that counts everyone living at your address on April 1st. Next caller. So why should I take it? Because it guides how billions in funding gets used each year for things like clinics, fire stations, public transit, and so much more. Caller three, go ahead. What's it have to do with representation? Well, your state's population determines the number of seats it has in the U.S. House of Representatives for the next 10 years. Next. How do you take it? Just look for an invitation in the mail starting March 2020, then complete it online, by phone, or by mail. Let's go to our final caller. Is my information safe? Yes, it can't be shared with anyone. It's the law. Thanks for joining us, and don't forget to shape your future. Start here. Learn more at 2020census.gov. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss much less listen to different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Welcome back to Evidence-Based Radio. We are now going to move on and talk about earthquakes. One of the best things we can have is an idea of where a natural disaster, especially one involving the movement of the Earth itself, is going to happen. And now researchers have produced a comprehensive map of the tectonic stress magnitudes across North America, which better shows some of the areas on the continent that are most likely to be affected by earthquakes. The paper and map were published in Nature Communications and show not only natural seismic activity, but also that caused by things like fracking. Writing in their paper, the authors of the new study, Jens Eric Lund Snee, a postdoctoral fellow with the U.S. Geological Survey, and Mark Zoback, a geophysicist physicist at Stanford University say it's the first comprehensive view of the relative principal stresses, stress magnitudes throughout North America. The map was created using over 2,000 horizontal stress orientations, including 300 new readings, which allowed them to develop a map of not only faults and hotspots across the continent, but also to make generalized inferences about the types of earthquakes that are prevalent in different regions. In the Northeast, we generally have reverse faults. This is where the fault actually moves upward relative to the baseline rather than sinking. 
This is caused by the fact that the continent is in compression, being pushed westward by the spreading of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Not only is the map valuable for other researchers in their own study, it's actually also practical for alerting areas that they are at seismic risk and what type of risk that might take on. Now, as I noted, it doesn't only trace traditional faults, such as those in California and elsewhere. It also highlights areas of more recent concern due to things like fracking, such as parts of Texas and Oklahoma. If you know an orientation of any fault and the state of stress nearby, you know how likely it is to fail and whether you should be concerned about it in both naturally triggered and industry triggered earthquake scenarios, explained Lundsnee in a press release. We've detailed a few places where previously published geodynamic models agree very well with the new data and others where the models don't agree well at all. The stress orientations were gathered from borehole from boreholes, long, narrow tubes of earth drilled from, for geophysical analysis. The researchers also took into account the historical seismic activity of a region. This allowed them to not only look at small areas of the continent, but the continent as a whole. Much of the center of the country is characterized by normal faulting when the crust stretches horizontally. This is ringed by an area with slip strike faults, which are vertical fractures where blocks move mostly horizontally. These faults characterize much of the West Coast, with the aforementioned reverse faults making up much of the East Coast. Each of these kinds of faults has a distinctive pattern of shaking, which can also help inform future planning in areas prone to seismic activity. In our hazard maps right now, in most places, we don't have direct evidence of what kind of earthquake mechanism could occur, said Jack Baker, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University who wasn't involved in the new study. It's exciting that we have switched from this blind assumption of anything is possible to having some location-specific inferences about what types of earthquakes we might expect. The map has already yielded surprises, like areas in the West where there are large changes to stress types and orientations very close to one another, on the order of tens of miles, in, in some cases, which is a level of detail not achieved in earlier maps. Another surprising find is the lack of glacial rebounding effect. When the massive weight of the glaciers was relieved, the crust began to rebound from the compression, which relieved pent-up seismic energy. Researchers assumed that this was still in progress, despite having begun some 20,000 to 12,000 years ago, because, of course, that's relatively a short time on a geological timescale. But the new map suggests that stress along faults is greater than post-glacial rebound pressures. We see things we've never seen before that require geologic explanation, said Zoback. This will teach us new things about how the Earth works. And on the other side of the Earth, researchers have found evidence that plate tectonics may have begun moving those original cratons at least 3.2 billion years ago. Now, it's unclear exactly when plate tectonics began. Researchers have given a range of time from 4 billion to 2.5 billion years ago. This new research, published in Science Advances, suggests an older rather than a newer start to this process. Part of the problem with studying the ancient Earth is that much of the original crust has been lost to the geological record. Most of this rock has weathered away or been subducted under other rocks and recycled as metamorphic. 
Very few places on the planet have rocks older than a few billion years, and most are much younger. Basically, this is one piece of geological evidence to extend the record of plate tectonics on Earth bother back in Earth's history, said Alec Brenner, a co-author of the study and a geologist from Harvard University's Paleomagnetics Lab in a press release. Based on the evidence we found, it looks like plate tectonics is a much more likely process to have occurred on the early Earth, and that argues for an Earth that looks a lot more similar to today's than a lot of people think. The Pilbara Craton in Western Australia represents some of the oldest rocks on the Earth's crust and stretches for over 260 miles, with some of the rocks dating to 3.5 billion years old. Brenner and his colleagues took 235 core samples in 2017 from a section known as the Honey Eater Basalt. Amazingly, the rocks they sampled were actually magnetically oriented. This is a boon for the researchers because it means that when the rocks formed, a record of the magnetic field's orientation was imprinted in the stone. This means that the rocks show what the Earth's magnetic field looked like during the Archaean period when they were formed. Using both the, no the known age of the rock and the information from the magnetic orientation, the researchers could extrapolate that the rocks were in motion as they formed between 3.35 and 3.18 billion years ago, when they were shifting in a horizontal direction at just under an inch a year, with a, quote, velocity comparable with those of modern plates. Now, previous measurements took used the position of rocks and chemical signatures to try and pinpoint the beginning of movements. This paper uses paleomagnetism, that magnetism that's locked in those rocks, rather than these chemical signatures. Now, of course, not everyone is convinced that this absolutely shows modern plate tectonics uh, was happening at that late time. Some researchers, including Stefan Sobolev, a professor of geodynamics at the University of Potsdam, suggests it might show a more local version of plate tectonics caused by mantle plumes or a meteor strike. However, he was very excited by the data itself. This is the first indication of a large-scale displacement of crust on Earth more than 3.2 billion years ago. Sobolev, who wasn't involved in the new research, wrote in an email to Gizmodo, some displacement is an indication of a kind of plate tectonics, but he notes not necessarily modern plate tectonics, and large-scale subduction. He hopes that more data can be collected from other remaining cratons of a similar age, which might reinforce the global scale of the subduction and movement. Any type of plate tectonics requires large-scale subduction, so for me, this work provides new evidence of a large-scale subduction on Earth already more than 3.1 billion years ago, Sobolev said. The other possibility that cannot be ruled out is the phenomenon of true polar wander. This describes the reorientation of a planet with respect to its axis of rotation. This can happen due to plate tectonics or other factors such as supervolcano activity, the melting of large ice sheets, or other processes that alter the distribution of the planet's mass and thus the spin along its axis. True polar, true, typical true polar wander estimates for the last 100 million years on Earth 
generate faster motions than their 2.5 centimeters per year, but we do not know how this worked during the Archaean, said Sobolev. This is consistent with the findings of the authors, who noted that while true polar wandering couldn't be ruled out, the data better fit with plate tectonics activity. And so, hopefully, more samples from Pilbara and other cratons will lend more clarity to this truly ancient time on Earth. And so, that is very exciting because we are learning more about the way in which the planet was formed, which is pretty impressive when you think about it. Um, there is a lot going on. I've been watching like that show, like I said, and it's really fascinating to see how you can end up, like I said before, with uh, what used to be the uh, bottom of the ocean suddenly at the top of the Himalayas. Um, so I know, for instance, in uh, the Andes, there are actually, uh, you can find huge beds of bivalve uh, fossils, uh, giant shells from bygone eras, and they're in the middle of the, you know, they're on top of the Andes. And it's just very cool to think about how these processes form and also about how this is still happening. So at some point, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge will continue to spread, and at some point, the Pacific will disappear. Um, right now, the African continent is moving northwards, so at some point, the Mediterranean will be clean, will be uh closed off and will at first become an inland sea and then eventually a new mountain range will probably develop between um, along the area where the two continents meet and um, I think it's Lake Baikal is eventually going to become a sea and then there will be an inland sea in Central Asia. All sorts of fantastic things are happening. And of course, um, you've probably heard of the Great Rift Valley. And so the Great Rift Valley means that there is actually going to be a part of the African continent that rips off from the bulk of it. And so the, the easternmost part of the... Um, African continent is actually ripping away from the rest of the continent and it will form its own uh, landmass with Arabia in the future. And so all of these things are happening extremely slowly, but they are definitely help happening and it's very cool to think about and to learn more about. Okay, but we are going to actually move away from regular geology and we are going to move on to uh, a bit of paleobotany. So let us move ahead in time a billion or two years and move slightly into the realm of paleobotany. Scientists have discovered the fossils of what might be the oldest green algae ever to have developed on the planet. Called Pterocladus antiquus, uh, Proterocladus antiquus, which basically means uh, the beginning of a clade from antiquity. Um, I'm translating that on the fly, so it's not exactly uh, proper, most likely, but that's pretty much what it's saying. Uh, it would have been quite small, just around two millimeters in length, but it had a very important function. It was able to produce oxygen by photosynthesis. Its discovery indicates that green plants we see today can be traced back at least one billion years ago, and 
They started in the ocean before they expanded their territory to the land. Study lead researcher King, uh, King Tang, uh, a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Geosciences at Virginia Tech, noted, this is the first fossil to give definitive pr proof of gene of green algae as far back in ge that far back in geological time. Previous research had used computer models and molecular clock calculations to hypothesize that photosynthesizing plants developed between the Paleoproterozoic era, which is 2.5 to 1.6 billion years ago, and the cryogenian period, 720 to 635 million years ago. That's a pretty big space <laughs> uh, to, to have error bars for. Um, and so this fossil puts photosynthesizing plants known as viridiplantae at at least a billion years old. Previously, the oldest wildly recognized fossil of green algae was from a mere 800 million years ago. Now, the newest fossil comes from near Dalian City in Liaoning Province in northern China. The researchers had been told of, quote, a thick pile of well-exposed sedimentary rocks from the Nanfen Formation, which dates to around a billion years ago. The formation contained mostly mudstone and shale, and these, so they took some of the oldest of those uh, back to their laboratory in Virginia, or at Virginia Tech, excuse me, for analysis. And so Tang found 1,028 specimens of the new algae. Just like modern algae, P. antiquis had differentiated branched cells and root-like structures. Now, beyond producing oxygen, it would most likely have provided food and shelter to other organisms. Most of the organisms, particularly cyanobacteria, in this period were either planktonic, planktonic or living, lying on the seafloor, Tang said. And so having this algae growing on the floor of the ocean would most likely have helped these other organisms to survive by providing shelter and food and other things like potentially even safety from other animals trying to eat them. Tang notes that the new fossils suggest that green seaweeds were important players in the ocean long before their descendants' land plants took control. Xu Huai Huang, or sorry, Xu Hai Xiao, a professor in the Department of Geosciences at Virginia Tech and Tang's supervisor, notes that not everyone agrees that this algae represents the basal species of all green plants. Not everyone agrees with us. <laughs> Some scientists think that green plants started in rivers and lakes and then conquered the ocean and land later, Xiao said in a statement. We also have strong evidence that red algae existed for more than a, more than a billion years ago. There is strong fossil evidence that red algae existed over a billion years ago, and we know the red and green algae diverged from a common ancestor. Timothy Gibson, a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Earth Sciences at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, and the Department of Geology and Geophysics at Yale University, who was not involved in the study, told Live Science. <laughs> so although this doesn't fundamentally change the way 
I'll think about the evolution of life, the discovery of this green algae fossil helps fill an important gap and strengthens an emerging, emerging timeline for the evolution of early complex life. So that is pretty exciting. So it turns out that this is pretty far back. Um, a billion years is pretty good. <laughs> Still not as good in, geolo in geological times as some other uh, stories we've talked about tonight, but a billion years is pretty good. And of course, one of the things that they talk about um, in geology is what exactly happened at that time when we started to have plants that produced oxygen. And so when you have plants that produce oxygen, you actually, the first time this happened, pretty much everything else on the planet died. And that's not actually that much of a of hyperbole. And so there's actually an entire layer you can see in rocks from the right age period where you have in large portions that are made from rocks that were initially on the ocean floor at that time. There's a big red band of, um, of oxidized iron. And in fact, there are formations called banded iron formations that represent this time period. And so the oceans would have been covered in, um, would have actually turned red when this first happened because the oceans had a higher iron content and the iron, when it reacted with the oxygen, formed iron oxide, rust. And so there are actually places where you can see these bands of iron. And in fact, they're actually, um, people look for them for um, being able to mine iron. And so it's really interesting to see these formations. Some of them are really beautiful, um, actually, with the dark red, rich color of the oxidized iron. And so basically what happened was that everything else was... Uh, photosynthesizing methane or not photosynthesizing, but um, was using methane and other gases. And oxygen is actually, um, I'm sure you probably heard this before, oxygen is actually really reactive, which means that it's actually really kind of deadly um, to a lot of things. And so any kind of anaerobic bacteria that was living in places where the oxygen was able to uh, reach it basically suffocated them, it killed them off. And so there were also, so there were both actual geophysical properties of the earth that changed due to this oxygen and also um, biological changes that ended up absolutely turning the tide of the amount and the variety of um plant life and eventually animal life on the planet by having this, what they generally call the great oxygenation event when these plants started to create um, photosynthesis. Now, these algae are very much not the first ones that would have done this. Um, and in fact, the, um, the first uh, animals or the first, um, they're not really animal, they're sort of they're one of those bacteria that's kind of, you know, half animal, half um, plant. But um, the first 
organisms to produce oxygen were stromatolites. And we find their remains because they actually built tiny little um, skeletons around themselves. And so we find these, you see them, they look like kind of um, small domes because as the stromatolites continued to grow, they would push up and create these domed uh, sort of rock-like formations, which eventually did become rock. And there's actually a place in Australia, because um, Australia just has a lot of really old rock and things like that. It's actually one of the, currently one of the more stable um, continents. Uh, I think it's the most stable continent at the moment. Uh, that won't always be the case, but at the moment it is. So it hasn't had a lot of changes going on. And so in Sharks Bay in Western Australia, you could actually go and see um, what are sort of modern day stromatolites. They're not the same exact organisms, but they have the same mechanism. And so they, uh, they're they on the edge of the beach and the water washes over them and they gather up bits of the sediment that's in the water and they filter it for food. And then they use it to also create these shells basically around them of um, this um, of the um, the stromatolite formation, <laughs> and so yeah, it's very cool. I love that sort of thing where you can see something that's basically the same as it was billions of years ago. Um, I think that's really incredible. Um, not that I've ever been there, but I've seen I've seen many programs which have shown it, and it's very cool. Um, Okay, so we are going to round out tonight with a bit of astrogeology. And so we've been talking about extrasolar uh, objects recently, Oumuamua, for instance. And so astronomers think they've discovered that a large group of previously known asteroids actually originated from outside of the solar system. Now, the objects are called the centaurs and are a group of asteroids which orbit near Jupiter and beyond. Now, they have highly inclined orbits with respect to the plane of the ecliptic, um, with at least one of them orbiting in the opposite direction from the rest of the objects in the solar system, which seems a pretty good uh, sign to me that it didn't start here <laughs> with all of the rest of the things. And so the plane of the ecliptic is basically the plane on which most of the um, planets orbit the sun. Researchers Fathi Namuni uh, at the Université Côte d'Azur in France and Helena Moraes at the UNESP in Brazil have used the laws of physics to suggest how these objects may have ended up in the solar system. They found that 19 of the objects most likely have their origins outside of the solar system. Object 514107-2015-BZ509, now known as, uh, forgive me, this is a uh, obviously Hawaiian or um, Pacific Islander word, so I'm so sorry for butchering it, but I do want to try and say it. Ka Epoplaca Awela, um, and I'm sure I mispronounced that, anyways, was first spotted in the Pan-STARRS survey back in 2015. Again, it orbits in the opposite direction uh, from the other objects in the solar system, so that is, of course, you know, not 
<laughs> something that agrees with what we would expect to find. Now, using that object's orbit, the researchers built a simulation that modeled in reverse the behavior of a million objects that fit within the parameters for that object with slight variations to account for margins of error. They found that the best scenarios fit objects which have stable orbit have had stable orbits since the beginning of the solar system some 4.5 billion years ago suggesting that they were captured from elsewhere now of course again not everyone agrees that this is the only possible explanation for the data but so far no one has come up with a more plausible origin especially for those ones that going the wrong way for objects with a greater than 60 degree Cine angle with respect to the ecliptic, of the Podcast 19 Network. objects were found more, that not only maintained stable orbits at the end of the simulation, but also took on orientations that are not easily explained by being formed within the solar system. Now, they reported their findings in the monthly notices of the Royal Ast Astronomical Society. And of course, this is a study of simply a group of outliers. There may be more prosaic objects in the solar system that just happen to have been formed outside of it and were captured at some point in our cosmic journey around the black hole at the center of the galaxy. If it turns out they are from a different star, this would let us study the composition of objects from another solar system without needing to leave our local neighborhood. We might even send a mission to explore one and get up close details of an interstellar object okay that's all the time i have for tonight um i apologize for my cat if you could hear him in the background um otherwise i will be back next week uh stay safe and keep learning good night evidence-based radio is a member of the planet side podcast network to learn more go to planetsidepodcasts.com the theme song is widgen by bird boy Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.